We're looking at two passages today, and the first passage is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the deserts of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals are not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The next reading is taken from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is God's word. Let's pray together as uh, we look at this.
Father, what a privilege that we can hear the words of Jesus, these words that he spoke, these uh, truths that he gave, his promises, his challenges. Uh, And we thank you that you speak them afresh to us this evening, that your spirit is at work amongst us to move our hearts and wills to change us. So please, would you be doing that, we pray. Give us insight, understanding, and the will to live out your truth, we pray it, for the honour of your name. Amen. Now, it is very rare that, I don't know about you, but very rare for me that I feel on a Sunday night that I'm missing good telly. Um, I, I don't really like period dramas particularly. Sorry, sorry. Um, I'm really sorry. Uh, but even if you like them, you can record them, so who cares? Uh, it's Sunday night. And I don't think a program that many of us would have greatly missed on Sunday nights has been going out on BBC One. It's just come to an end. Fake or Fortune? Anyone seen an episode? Oh, brilliant. <laughs> there we go, Becca, well done. The essential premise is it's kind of like Antiques Roadshow with a little twist um, because uh, people come along and they bring their paintings and they're either told it's a fake and worth pennies or it's worth a gazillion pounds and uh, you're loaded. That's the stories and it's all quite fun if you like that sort of thing. I have never seen an episode, but I did read about Martin Lang. Martin Lang had bought a painting for £100,000 about 10 years ago. And uh, then thought, you know, oh, it was by a a French-Russian painter, artist, Marc Chagall. And he saw in the press that another Chagall had gone for £10 been sold at auction. So thought, Hey, uh, I'm quits in. And so took his 100,000 painting along to the experts who said, mm, don't know, if it's genuine, it is worth certainly over a million pounds. Mm, we're not sure though. So they sent it off to the experts, the Chagall Committee in Paris, because uh, that's where um, the bloke did most of his work, and it was declared a fake. And under French law, is therefore burned in front of a magistrate. Which is pretty severe, isn't it? You know, you get the painting and it's either ooh la la, boof, and uh, the thing gets burned. No middle ground. Uh, that's just the way it rolls uh, in Paris and the Chagall Committee. Now, that's a big mistake to make. A hundred thousand pounds invested in a fake which is destroyed. What a mistake. And in this section, Jesus is wanting to separate the fake people of God, from the true people of God. And he does so for our benefit. You don't want to invest your life with the fakes. Because it leads to destruction. Buff, you get burned in front of a magistrate. You don't. um, But uh, you waste your life. It's destruction. Be with the true people of God, not the fake people of God. Now, to orientate ourselves, this section begins tonight, uh, chapter 21, 23, all the way through to the end of chapter 22. It's a series of clashes between Jesus and the religious leaders. I don't know if you've been enjoying the sledge hockey at the Paralympics. I think it's magnificent. Uh, you see these guys in their wheelchairs, just upper body strength, and uh, they go for it in the house with these tussles. Well, it's a bit like that here. Uh, there's no ice, uh, but there's a bit of a battle going on. You get the introduction in, in uh, uh, verse 23, this uh, section, the authority of Jesus questions. 
21, 23 down to 27. Uh, And then the next bit, you get three parables. Today, the parable of the two sons. It focuses on the ministry of John, the Baptist. Then next week, uh, we see the, uh, the parable of the tenants. focuses on the ministry of Jesus. And then the parable of the wedding banquet focuses on the ministry of Jesus' church. But it's conflict, conflict for the next couple of chapters. Uh, who's, who's involved here? Well, verse 23, we're told who comes. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. Now, sometimes if you read the Gospels, um, so we had read uh, chapter 3 from Matthew's Gospel. There it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you remember? Those are uh, sort of labels upon groups. It's a bit like saying the Anglicans and the Baptists came to Jesus. It's kind of a denominational thing. Whereas here, it's uh, in verse 23, it's the chief priests and the elders. That's a rank thing. So here he's saying, the bishops and the, the senior laymen, the, the heads of the wealthiest families came. So these are the, the elite in one sense, in religious terms. The senior guys come to Jesus. And they're not happy. Because uh, if you were here last week, Jesus got into the temple, smashed over the tables, and he's been healing people on the Sabbath. So they come to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus replies with a question. That's quite normal in the, uh, the rhetoric of the day. Rabbis would debate by asking one another questions. But Jesus replies, verse 24, I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you why, by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Well, just to simplify the question, why didn't you believe John? We had read Matthew chapter 3. John comes along and says, you need to repent and believe in him, the Messiah, to be saved. And Jesus says, why didn't you do that? And he tells a story to ram home his point. A story about a dad and two sons. And I want to focus on the parable itself and we'll, we'll need the other material to understand what's going on. But in this parable, as is often the case, three main protagonists. There's a father who represents God. There's a positive example and a negative example. Many parables work that way. And we're going to break it this way. Look at the father. The father wants the obedience of faith. Secondly, we'll look at the religious son who didn't obey the gospel. Thirdly, the immoral son who did obey the gospel. Okay, so those three things. First then, let's look at the father. The father wants the obedience of faith. Verse 28. What do you think, says Jesus? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted. Now in that story, it's fairly obvious. I'll do it, but he doesn't. I won't, but he does. The issue is, who, verse 31, who did it? Who went and worked? I don't care what they said, says Jesus. Who actually got on and did it? Went and worked in the field. 
Now we'll see the key verse for interpretation though is verse 32. Let me read that to you. John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Parable. I don't care what you say. It's what you do that matters. Application. I don't care what you look like. It's what you believe that matters. Now we just need to have a little think about that for a moment. Because there's a sense in Matthew's Gospel, whenever Jesus speaks, faith is always obedient faith. And you cannot pull them apart. Believing is doing, in a sense. Let's think about that a bit more, because I, I wonder sometimes uh, people might get a little confused on this. How does, to put it another way, how does obedience relate to faith in the Christian life? Oh, here's a good definition. I, I like this, a little definition by uh, Christopher Ashe. Obedient faith is bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord, both at the start and the continuation of the Christian life. Bowing the knee Entrusting submission. I like that. Has two very strong elements to it. Trust. You become and continue to be a Christian by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. All of us, without exception, uh, have failed to live a life that God wants. We have sinned uh, and deserve his justice. Jesus, the only man who lived a perfect life upon the cross, there's a swap. He takes punishment. We get perfection and glory. There's a swap. You have to trust in that work of Jesus Christ. Trust. But it's trusting submission. When you do that, you go to Jesus and say, and now Jesus, you are my Lord. And I'm going to stop living how I lived before, and now I live for you, and I follow you. And my obedience to you is a demonstration of my faith. Trusting submission. Or to put it in other terms, the whole of the Christian life, both its beginning and its continuation, is repentance and faith. And you can't pull those two apart. Because if you just have repentance, you're saying, I'm not good enough for God, and I need to change, and I need to change, and I need to change. But there's no saviour, and there's no forgiveness, and that's miserable. And if you say, I just want faith, I just trust that Jesus died for me and that's okay. But there's no repentance. You never change. And all you're saying there is, I, I like Jesus as Saviour, but I don't want him as Lord. And you're not actually trusting him. It's repentance and faith together. Trusting obedience. Trusting submission. Let me just show you, this is this goes on throughout the whole of Matthew's Gospel. So we had it read uh, in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. John comes along and says, John the Baptist came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Do you see what he's saying there? Two things. Repent. As you're walking one way, turn around, go the other way, change direction and follow the Lord. Repent and believe, says John. 
or in that same section in uh, uh, verse 7, slightly further down. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them in a cheerful sort of way, doesn't say that in the Bible, uh, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping the repentance. It's no good saying, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I trust in the Lord. Where's your lifestyle? Where's your repentance? You've got to have both, faith and repentance. Jesus arrives in chapter 4, and he's opening gambit is, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn your life around. Stop living with you in charge and live with me in charge. Repent. What's the sort of life that Jesus is looking for? Well, again, you get it a couple of times in um, first in uh, Matthew 7 at the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. It's not enough, says Jesus, to say, I'm a Christian if you don't obey me. Faith is seen in repentance. Got to have them both. And similarly in chapter 12, verse 50, who is in your family, Jesus? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not saying perfectly. No one obeys perfectly. But he is saying, if you trust me as your saviour, that will be seen in how you live your life. Don't pull apart repentance and faith. All of this preaching throughout Matthew's Gospel, it, it expects that the two of them are held together. I'll give you a daft example. Uh, when God was giving out directional skills, he missed me. I have a terrible sense of direction. It's truly appalling. If we're walking somewhere and you think it's uh, one direction, I think it's another, back yourself, not me. Um, don't think, oh, he must know what he's doing. He's, don't. Uh, fortunately, my wife is very good. Kerry has an excellent sense of direction. A couple of years ago, uh, summer holiday, we uh, were in the south of France, in Argelais, a very nice, lovely time. And uh, we drove back uh, through the whole of France, which is fairly straightforward. Um, the roads are nice, and we had sat-nav. Oh, hail sat-nav, and it's uh, uh, dulcet tones. Uh, it was all very good, and we got near to Paris, and uh, sat-nav very, ca- very kindly said to us, uh, don't go on the peripherique, you know, the outer one, uh, M25 sort of. Uh, there's been an accident, it'll take you hours. Okay, thank you very much, Satnav. This is how we speak to one another. Um, uh, and then, so we go on the inner ring road, fine. Uh, we hit the inner peripherique. Uh, ooh, another accident. Urgh, don't do that. Go through the centre of Paris. Ooh, okay, uh, Satnav, that's all right. Um, I didn't want to upset or um, make anyone nervous, it's fine. Uh, we've got the direction, we've got Satnav, and I've driven in Paris a few times, it's fine. Um, okay, a a couple of miles, extra miles, and then Satnav just had a complete flip out and said that we were driving in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) No, you know, when he does that sometimes, the satellites go woo every now and again. Uh, Ah, don't worry, I've driven in Paris a few times, it's fine. It's fine. I'll get us back onto the ring road now. It's no problem. Okay. Daddy, do you think we'll see the Eiffel Tower soon? No, no, no. We're going to the ring road. We won't see the Eiffel Tower. Daddy, that's the Eiffel Tower. Yes. <laughs> I thought you'd like to see it <laughs> up close. 
Uh, and it says, comments from Kerry, you don't know where you are, do you? No, I'm fine. We're lost, aren't we? We are not. Eventually, stop the car. <laughs> she pulled over, stopped the car. She went into a little tabac, uh, got a nice little map, a uh, street map of Paris, got back into the car, looked at me. Do you trust me? Yes. We do it my way. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, the obvious things there. In that little account, there is a decisive moment of salvation. <laughs> Kerry bought a map. There is also a moment for me of decision. Will I trust her? Or will I go my own way? I decided the wise thing was to trust her. Yes, darling, I trust you. From that point onwards, my trust is demonstrated in my obedience to her. She says, go left. If I trust her, I go left. Or if she says, go left, I go my own way. I'm saying, I don't trust you. I know better. Do you see my obedience demonstrates if I've trusted her? Do you see that? The moment of salvation, she is now a potential saviour. I put my faith in her and I demonstrate that by obeying and following her. Now, um, what happens then if I fail to obey? She says, go left. And I think, no, I've been up here. Look, there's Montmartre. That's where we want to go, this sort of direction. And, and it's a dead end. I say, ooh, sorry. And she says, yes. Turn around and do what I told you to do. And I go, sorry. And do that. And that, of course, is the Christian life as well. We say, Jesus, I trust you. You are my saviour. And I know you say go left, but I just it looks quite exciting over here. So I'm going over here. And then we go, I am sorry. I, once again, I turn around and demonstrate my trust by repenting and saying sorry. And he says, and of course I forgive you. Do you see, obedience is the expression of trust. The Christian life, it begins with, to put it another way, repentance and faith. It is ongoing repentance and faith. That is the truth of the whole of the New Testament. The book of Romans, a great justification by faith. It begins chapter 1 verse 5. It ends chapter 16, 26 with, we are called to the obedience of faith. Same point. Bible's always the same truths. The obedience of faith, bowing the knee in trusting submission, faith and obedience. We need them both. And that's what the Father is calling for. The Father wants the obedience of faith. Secondly, let's look at these two sons then. Uh, first of all, uh, the religious son. The religious son did not obey the gospel. The second point, uh, the religious son didn't obey the gospel. I'm going to go to him first because he represents who Jesus is speaking to. Okay, He's speaking to the religious teachers, and they're the ones who are represented by this second son. So verse 30, the second son, father went to the other son and said the same thing, go and work in the field today, the vineyard. He answered, I will, but he did not go. The son says the right thing, he does nothing. And Jesus is saying, you religious leaders, you say the right things, you look the part, but you don't 
believe what John told you to. Repent and put your trust in me as saviour. That's the parallel going on here. So again, verse 32 is the key verse for interpretation. John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes did. They're the first son. And even after you saw them, you did not repent and believe him. It's quite a shock for them. Jesus says, do you know what? You're not even, you're not in the vineyard. That is, you're not in the kingdom of God. You look, you say the right things, you talk beautifully, you act morally, there's no faith. You're out. Now, just back up, it's worth asking how they may get themselves into such a mistake, really. They've asked Jesus this question, verse 23, um, uh, how are you able to do this? What's your authority? Jesus asks, verse 25, what do you make of John? And then you get there, they get this sort of tiz. So the second half of verse 25, what do we do now? Uh, what, do, what do we say? John's baptism. Uh, they discussed it amongst themselves and said, well, we've got two options. Option one, if we say John's baptism came from heaven, God sent this man, Jesus will ask us, why didn't you believe him? Or why didn't they? Because they didn't want to change. They didn't want to repent of how they were living. They didn't want to believe they needed Jesus to die for their sins. They thought they were happy as they were. Remember what John said to them, you brood of vipers, where is your repentance? They didn't want to change. Well, we don't want to do that, so we can't say that John came from heaven. Well, what's our other option, verse 26? If we say that John came from men, that is, he's just a bloke and, you know, people have got excited about him, there's nothing special about him really, well, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Well, we can't say he was just a man, because then we'd be really unpopular. So there's their choice. Well, we don't want to change, and we don't want to lose credibility, because we're man-pleasers. So what do we do? What do they do? Verse 27, they lie. We don't know. Well, I don't know what's going on. It's a lie. They do know. They've just had a conversation about it. So you don't want to be in their shoes. This old says, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Well, I don't want to say he's God. I'd have to listen to him. Um, I, I'm, I don't want to be rude. You know, I might become unpopular. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Just, I don't, I don't engage on the issue. And that's where they're at here. You see, these religious leaders, they said that they followed God, but they didn't. They didn't repent and believe in the Messiah as John had told them to. Now let me, two little applications of this. Here's the first. I think the primary application has got to be be wary of religious leaders who appear spiritual but will not repent and declare their faith in Jesus Christ, that he had to die as a penalty for their sin. So watch out for leaders who will take you astray. But secondly and more personally, look, be, be careful, obviously, uh, for us. We, we don't want to walk, start to walk down this path of religious teachers. We don't want to be those who have a verbal profession of faith, but there's nothing to back it up. There's no reality 
a refusal to repent. That's just hypocrisy. False faith, the fake fake, says, yeah, I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus, but nothing happens. No change. No fruit in keeping with repentance. You can do that in a very moral way, like these uh, uh, Pharisees, these uh, these chief elders, etc. They talk a good game, but there's no change. You can do it in an immoral way, I guess. You profess faith, but also living in a way which is far from the Bible. I guess you can do it in either way. But repentance. Where is fruit in keeping with repentance? Asked Jesus and John. And just let me remind you, there's a number of elements to repentance. If you know you've done something wrong, or you're living in a pattern, a lifestyle, which is contrary to the scriptures, one, you confess it to God. Two, you confess it to another person, someone you can trust. It's more real, more genuine. Three, you undo the wrong you've done if you can. If you know you've wronged someone, it doesn't matter if it was a year ago, two years ago, but you've never said sorry to them, you've never tried to make it up to them, do it. You should do that. And four, you change your lifestyle so you, you, you'll get out of that trap, get out of that pattern. It's got to be all of those. You confess to God, you confess to another person, you make reparation as far as you can, you say sorry, pay back money, whatever it is. Four, you change your lifestyle. That's repentance. And if you know you've not done that in an area of your life, Jesus would say, do it. Do it. There's the religious son. The father wants the obedience of the faith. The religious son didn't obey the gospel. Lastly, more briefly and much more cheerfully, the immoral son. Last time, the immoral son did obey the gospel. So here's the immoral son, verse 28. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, go and work today in the vineyard. No, I will not, says the first son. But later on, he changed his mind and went. Now, we're told, verse 31, that his son are, or is, the tax collectors and prostitutes. Those who have made a car crash of their lives, those who for much of their lives said, oh, shut up. I, 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 who cares if there's a God? I'm doing my own thing. But at a certain point in their lives go, uh, no, I repent. I change my mind. I trust him. I follow him. We get used to this phrase, if you're a Bible reader, of uh, tax collectors and sinners we, um, and prostitutes. Jesus eats with them and, you know, he commends them here. But we do need to remember these are the scum of society. So we need a phrase with a bit more bite. I don't know. The drug dealers and the whores have priority over you, will enter when you will not, Jesus says, the very respectable. Because the drug dealers and the whores heard John's preaching and repented and believed that Jesus had died for them. The decisive doing of the immoral brother is to believe. Do you see that? So there is a sense, uh, there's a sense here Believing is doing. You show you believe by what you do. But the most important thing you ever do is believe. (laughs) Because faith in Jesus Christ issues in obedience. Repentance and faith, simultaneous action. I'm walking my own way. I live for me. I live for me. I do what I want. No, I 
turn around, I repent and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Simultaneous action and now I obey him because I've turned around and I live for him as my Lord. Bowing the knee, entrusting to submission. Why does Jesus always go on about tax collectors and prostitutes or tax collectors and sinners? You do know why he does that and why he dines with them. It is because he's saying there is no sin, no crime, no pattern of lifestyle that is beyond his grace. No one's beyond him. The very worst were able to turn around and put their lives, uh, put their trust in him. There is no sin, no crime, no lifestyle which is beyond his grace. That is wonderful. Uh, I've been reading a book. I think I left it on the table. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, I'll bring it out, Ryan. You said that was such a sort of dramatic jump up from your chair. Uh, um, you can now sort of march it round the room. That's marvellous. Anyway, um, one or two others have been reading this. I know uh, this is Escaping the Devil's Bedroom, um, which is a book about sex trafficking, global prostitution, and the gospel's transforming power. Uh, lots of stories are from around the world, how Christians have gone in and um, uh, broken girls out of brothels and uh, shared the gospel in night cl- in um, uh, lap dancing clubs and that sort of thing. It's a very good read. Uh, lots of wonderfully encouraging stories in there. Let me tell you about one woman. Her name is Harmony. Uh, she was sexually abused as a child uh, and then growing up in her teenage years uh, further by boyfriends. She just didn't know what to do with her body really. She was sexually abused repeatedly uh, and then entered the sex trade as a young woman. She was wonderfully converted and here is a little bit of Harmony's testimony. I used to dance in a strip club with eyes everywhere. They were looking at me taking from me. If I let the the lights hit my eyes at a certain angle, I never had to see their faces. I could pretend that I was alone and isolated on stage, just as I felt alone and isolated inside. Months later, I'm a Christian. I have a new audience. I have a father who loves me and forgives me. Though I can't see him, I know he's looking at me. I can feel him near. I'm brand new in his eyes. I'm spotless and without wrinkle. I'm forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? A a woman who, who knows she's lived in a moral lifestyle, who's been broken. Her life, her body, trashed, used as garbage in many ways. And yet she says, oh, I'm spotless now. I'm forgiven. I am loved. I am new. I was the scum of the earth in one sense. That's how many would have viewed her. And now I am loved. I was never beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Question, practical question. What happens if I'm a harmony and um, I I slip back into a terrible lifestyle? I I have a sort of lapse and go back whoring again. Well, Well, obviously what you do, harmony, is you say, you come back in repentance and faith and say, don't do that. You have a God who loves you. You have a saviour who's died for you. Turn around, go after him again. There is always forgiveness. There is always grace 
but demonstrate you've trusted him in the way you've lived. But the life, Christian life, begins with repentance and faith. It continues in repentance and faith. There is always more grace for you, Harmony. So there's Jesus just starting his little um, separation. There are the true people of God. There are the fake people of God. So watch out, he says. He gives us this for our good. The fake people of God, they'll look good. They may dress up in glamorous clothes. I'm not sure clerical stuff is ever glamorous. Uh, They may look the part. They may say spiritual words. Is there belief in Jesus Christ as saviour for their sins? Is there belief in his death upon the cross? And is there fruit that comes from their repentance? That's what you've got to ask. A changed life and a dependence upon the cross. Or are they fake? Because the true people, the true people of God, like many most here, we're the people who say, I I don't mind. In fact, I, I, I think it's wonderful. I'm in the same boat as Harmony. I'm the scum of the earth. I deserve nothing. I lived for much of my life saying, ah, whatever, there might be a God, until he woke me up and I turned around and I put my faith in him. I don't mind. I'm honoured to be in a category with them. And those are the true people of God who say, I don't mind being called a tax collector, a prostitute of no worth because I know that Jesus has died for me. I'm forgiven. I'm pure. I'm spotless. I'm loved. And I demonstrate my trust in my life. I obey him. So fake or fortune, you may not get the fortune in this life. You don't if you become a Christian. There's no £10 million painting lands in your lap. I'm sorry. But in eternity, the difference between the fake and the fortune is very stark. The fake, they don't face a French magistrate. They face Jesus as judge. But those of us who have trusted in him, oh, it's eternity. It's a fortune in eternity, if you will. So don't be embarrassed to say I'm the scum. Don't be embarrassed by that. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we... Uh, thank you for uh, Jesus' warnings here. Thank you that you, reco- you record these uh, engagements with these religious teachers. We want to be those who are not naive. We want to recognize that there are a number in this world, in this country, who would pretend to be leaders, but don't trust in Jesus Christ. But Father, we don't want to be naive, but nor do we, we want to be those who are judgmental, but rather look upon our own lives and say we are not worth much but we do repent of our sins and we do trust in Jesus Christ and so in your eyes we are worth everything. Father, will we be those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would that be true of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.